The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would, please, to Exodus chapter 26. And I am thankful for these Sunday afternoon opportunities to study Old Testament worship. Uh, This is the way that I began my study of theology. Uh, I began uh, getting very, very interested in this many, many years ago, hearing my dad teach on the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is the place where I learned many of the scripture's most important doctrines. I mentioned in the Easter sermon uh, a few months ago that Romans is the New Testament's most important book of doctrine. And in the first chapter, Paul said that he was not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. And the gospel is Paul's theme throughout the entire book of Romans. It is actually an exposition of the gospel. And there are some who mistakenly think that the gospel is only the very short, simple story of how Jesus went to the cross to save us from our sins. And that is, of course, the good news of the gospel. But what God did to make the gospel effectual to us and how he satisfied his justice and how he began the good work in us from the consideration of election in eternity past to our calling and our justification in the present to our glorification in the future, uh, these doctrines that Paul mentions in Romans are all essential parts of the gospel of Christ. And so in Romans, Paul expounded those doctrines, laying out a foundation for the Christian faith that is unparalleled in any other book of the New Testament. But little do people know, do they understand that God already laid this foundation and he laid it in the doctrines of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So ancient Israel was not without the gospel. The difference between them and us is that as New Testament Christians, we can look at what Paul and others of the New Testament wrote in their explanation. We can read the arguments of Paul and other New Testament writers. And the Old Testament Israelites didn't have that benefit. They didn't have all these explanations. But what they did have was a picture book. They had things that they could look at. And often the pictures that they had had no captions underneath, so they understood them very well. And so our opportunity to look at the tabernacle is uh, our chance to see doctrine illustrated. If you had a picture book of doctrine, the tabernacle would be it. So this is what we see. We see doctrines and pictures and symbols, figures and types. Now I want to show you, again, the artist rendering of the tabernacle. Uh, This is the coverings that are pulled back. We are, of course, discussing the coverings in this series of lessons, and that exposes what is underneath the outer covering. Those colors that you see are exposed from underneath the outer covering. And then, of course, there is also the the boards and the bars that we mentioned before, the silver foundation that is there. And those are all important types of scripture that we've learned. Gold standing for the deity of Christ, the wood and the boards, the humanity of Christ, the silver is redemption. And then added to that, we've, we started looking at the, start looking at these coverings, and there we find more marvelous pictures of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, Paul wrote in Romans that the gospel of Christ concerns his son, or he says the gospel of God, rather, concerns his son, Jesus Christ, who is raised from the dead. And from that statement, Paul expounded the gospel. And in our study of these coverings, these pictures expound the gospel. So our text is chapter 26 in Exodus. Uh, I'm not going to read the entire text. There is a similar description of dimensions of the fabrications of the coverings without uh, uh, going through the entire text. I'm just going to pick out the verses that relate to that, and we'll proceed our study from there. So in verse number 1, it says, Moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen, and blue and purple and scarlet, with cherubims of cunning work shalt thou make them. Now, this is the underneath covering. This is the one that you would see as you enter the tabernacle. You'd look up, and this would be the ceiling. This makes up the ceiling. Then next goes over that a covering of goat's hair. This in verse number 7. And thou shalt make curtains of goat's hair to be a covering upon the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shalt thou make. And then there are the last two coverings that are in verse number 14. And thou shalt make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering above of badger skins. Now the badger skin is the only one that you would see from the outside because all the rest are underneath that covering of badger skins. Now to briefly catch us up from the last time uh, with the first covering, there was the covering of fine twine linen. And that was a picture of Christ's holiness and righteousness. This was a covering of fine needlework. It was predominantly white, and it had cherubim that was sewn into it using these different colors. And that embroidery in this, in this covering was a picture of Christ's beauty, a, a beauty that I've often mentioned can only be seen from the inside. You see, no one understands how marvelously majestic that Christ is until they have a relationship with him by faith. And so on the outside of the tabernacle, there, there's a bronze altar, there, there are bloody sacrifices where all those sacrifices were made. And if all that you had was what you found in the courtyard, where you find this brazen altar and you see sacrifices being made, then that would leave Christianity to be very much like, uh, or very much resemble pagan worship in the blood that's shed and all the sacrifices that are made. But Christianity is much different than that because the sacrifice of Christ, the one who is pictured by that animal, leads a person into communion with God and to, into all of the benefits that make him perfect and holy and personally attached to the God that we serve. And there isn't a pagan religion or any other religion that offers to us this personal relationship with God. Only Christianity does that. So the altar is not all there is because just a few steps away from where that altar receives the sacrifices, there is this building of the tabernacle and there's a door by which you enter in and on the inside are the beauties of Christ. Now, we've yet to discuss some of these things, but here we start by going in. We've not discussed the door yet, but we're going to bypass that for just a little while as we look at coverings, and we step on the inside, and when we do, we look up, and there is the exquisite embroidery, embroidery of the ceiling. And in the ceiling, there are cherubim. Now, last time we noted the use of the cherubim, why they're there. Sewn into the ceiling is this these are these angelic creatures that are most often seen as the guardians of God's holiness. And these cherubim have four faces. Each has four faces. The face of a man, 
the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. And I'm not going to go back into those four faces, but all of those speak of the character of Christ. And that is just a, a fascinating study that weaves us in and out of Old Testament prophetic text and then takes us all the way into the throne room of God as it's described in the book of Revelation. And so looking up at these cherubim, I think that with four faces we would think that, well, these are mighty and they are powerful creatures, but to some extent they're all, all also very frightening creatures. We've not seen anything like it. But underneath all the power is compassion. The power of all of this is for our protection, but the wings of the cherub are emblematic of the wings of the Savior under which the fledgling, fledglings of Christ flee for solace and safety. And that's a wonderful picture. Well, we move on then from this first covering uh, and go to the next one that's on top of the fine twine linen. And next there is a covering of goat's hair. And the goat's hair is a picture of Christ who is our sin. Now, we learned that goats were one of the main sacrificial animals. They were used for a specific purpose to show special aspects of our Savior's uh, work. Numbers 28, 15 describes, And one kid of the goats for a sin offering unto the Lord shall be offered, beside the continual burnt offering and his drink offering. So the goat is used as a sin offering. And if you remember our study, this is a sweet savor offering because it depicts the sufferings of Christ in bearing our sins on the cross. But before we speak of that aspect, I, I want to mention um, the way that this covering is made. Now, I'm rehearsing some things that we've said in previous messages. A moment ago, I... Uh, reiterated some things that were said in the Easter sermon. Well, here's another sermon that I've preached in the past that we can relate this to, and that would be the Mother's Day sermon. And in that message, I, I spoke of Mary, who is the sister of Lazarus, who brought this fine alabaster box of ointment, and she brought it and, and anointed Jesus prior to his crucifixion and his burial. And you remember that some of the disciples complained about it, uh, this lavish display that she, that she poured out on Christ of this expensive ointment. They said, well, this could be sold, and you could take that money and give it to the poor. And you remember that Jesus rebuked these naysayers, and he said, she did what she could. See, women, women like Mary, were limited in those days in their expressions of worship. And she was limited in the ways that she could worship Jesus. And this was the very best that she could offer him. And so she was willing to do that to bring this very expensive ointment. And then from that, we discussed how women are important in worship. And we, we spoke of how they have as much a role to fill in the worship of our Lord and Savior as men. Now, what they do is different from the men. Each of them, uh, men and women, are to stay in their proper sphere within the church. But although we are different in our work, there is none that's less important than the other. Now, you remember, there are two workmen that were chosen to do the work of the tabernacle. Uh, they were the ones that uh, oversaw it. This was Bezaleel and Aholiab. They, they are the overseers. Bezaleel is, is the main person. But that doesn't mean that these two men were the only ones that worked on the tabernacle. Because if they were, it would take Israel a long, long time to make all of these things. And they didn't have time to do it. And so there were others. All of Israel was involved. And my point here on this is that women also played an integral part in the building of the tabernacle. 
So that in Exodus 20, uh, 35 verse 26 we read, And all the women whose heart stirred them up in wisdom spun goat's hair. So who is responsible for making this marvelous symbol of Christ? It was the women. Women, it says, whose hearts were, were stirred up in wisdom. And this, this means they, they saw a job that needed to be done. They'd studied the skill of taking goat's hair and spinning it into these intricate designs. Ancient texts described how women could make the goat's hair very soft and comfortable to the touch. And they didn't have downy fabric softener and didn't have dryer sheets to do that. But they just had this uncommon skill of knowing how to work with goat's hair to make it a very fine, finely woven curtain such as would go on this, uh, on this uh, tabernacle. So the tabernacle has the work of women that, that proceeds here that's just as important as the work of the men. Now, I know that there may be, I don't know, in this crowd, probably not, but some women would say, well, I hear what you're saying. And that, uh, that statement that you made is totally politically incorrect because you're saying that sewing is women's work. And I'll have you know that I'm skilled. I, I can be a corporate CEO. I can be president of the United States. Well, you can just color me ignorant because I still believe that men and women have their own work to do. And uh, they don't have to be the same work for all of us to be valuable. So in the church, we have work for men to do. We have work for the women to do. There's work that women can't intrude on. Pastoring and deaconship are men's work. And that's a creational principle that God enforced for all time. The priesthood was man's work. Uh, this uh, this week, in, with my wife in the hospital, interesting that I should be talking about this subject because while she was there, there was a chaplain that came to visit her and she, this chaplain introduced herself to me as Reverend so-and-so. And she said, I understand that you're Reverend Smith. And I said, well, whatever, whatever. Um, so we, we talked for a little while and of course I didn't want to embarrass her or, or argue with her there, but that's, you know, that's not the place for women. That's not women's work. Uh, a women, I don't like to use the word reverend for myself, and I sure don't want to hear a woman use the word reverend. But we see here, though, how women were used, how they could build this beautiful tabernacle that spoke such beautiful pictures of Christ, and without them, they wouldn't have been able to do this. Now, what we ought to do as we study this, we need to be careful to observe all things that are taught in the tabernacle, that building the tabernacle is a picture of God's church working together, coming together as a body to, to do what the Lord commands us to do, and that's for the glory of Christ. And it takes all of us in the church to do that, both men and women. Now, in verse 7 of our text, it says, And thou shalt make curtains of goat's hair, to be a, a covering upon the tabernacle, eleven curtains shalt thou make. This is a covering that stretched completely over the tabernacle, over to about 18 inches above the ground. And the exception to where this covered would be the door, uh, the door of entrance. And when we studied sacrifices, we, we spent much time on the use of goats. And I'm not going to take you all the way back through that study. Um, if you're interested in it, again, you'll find information about how goats were used scattered throughout about 20 sermons on, on sacrifices. So we're not going to do that, but rather we're going to condense much of the information so that we don't end up with another 20 sermons on just the coverings. And I'm sure that you'll appreciate that. So here's a very small glimpse uh, of the use of the goat. 
First of all, the goat is a picture of guilt and punishment transferred to Christ. Now, this very familiar New Testament scripture in 1 Corinthians says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. One of the main points that we've consistently made about evangelism is that the initial approach in evangelism must be right or people will not understand the gospel message and why they so desperately need a savior. So if people aren't told that they're sinners and that they're under the condemnation of God's wrath, then they won't see the need to repent and trust Christ. And most people believe they're fine just the way that they are. They don't really need to be saved from anything. And unfortunately, many churches or even perhaps most churches foster that idea by never preaching about hell, never exposing the sinner's depravity, never even talking about sin itself. And as we've said, uh, many gospel presentations begin with, with just God has a wonderful plan for your life. And nobody ever gets to the subject of sin and how we need to repent of sin. So the church just says to these people, oh, you are such an awesome person. You are so awesome. You have potential to do anything that you want to do. You just need to think good thoughts. You need to concentrate on your intrinsic worth. And that's all that matters. You have so much potential. But you take about a three-minute review of Romans chapter 1, and where Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, destroys that thought. You go on reading Romans 1, and the reader is submerged into the total depravity of man. And Paul uses that to explain the desperate need of the gospel. That we are sinners, we have no hope of doing anything about our sins. We have no power in us to come to God because the depravity we're in is so deep. And the mire is so thick that we can't pull ourselves out of it. But it's not just that. It's not just the depravity of man himself. The mire, the thing that mires us down are horrible offenses that we have committed against a holy God. And each of those offenses demands death and awful eternal punishment in the fires of hell. And we can't get out of that. So we have to have help outside of us to be right with God. Well, we have here a picture in the goat offering of Christ becoming a sin offering for us where Christ takes the guilt of the sinner that we have no power to deal with and he takes that and he pays the debt for sin that is owed to God. God has never forgiven the first sin without compensation to his justice. So sin always carries a penalty that must be paid. But out here you have a false gospel that's being preached in many of these churches that what God, God just loves people. He just loves people and he loves them so much that he's kind and he's tolerant. He tolerates sin, he forgives sin, and he, and he was not going to hold anybody accountable for the consequences of sin. And in fact, they would say that sin is not really sin. It doesn't estrange us from God and thus they reduce Christ to a life coach, not a sin bearer. Oh, they say Christ will make all of your relationships better. Sort of like voting for Pedro. Vote for me and vote for me and all your wildest dreams will come true. You understand my reference, don't you? All right, some of the, young, the younger ones do. The rest of you say, what? What's that? Anyway, vote for Pedro. Uh, in the meantime, um, 
So they say, well, you know, you know, Christ makes your relationships better. Christ is your ticket to fortune. I mean, uh, if you do this thing just right, Christ can shave two inches off your hips. Just do it the right way. I heard one pastor uh, say that preachers know more about CrossFit than they do about the cross. And that is a problem today. People die and go to hell listening to this stuff, not knowing that sin must be paid for by somebody. Sin must be punished. And there's only two ways that it can be punished. It must either be punished by our suffering in hell, or there must be a substitute that's punished for us. Now understand that only Christ can pay for sin. I want you to hear that. Only Christ can pay for sin. Let's clear up some misunderstandings. There are some people who say, you go to hell to pay for your sins. Strictly speaking, that is not true. You can't pay for sin, and you never will pay for sin. Hell is eternal. It's against, uh, sin is against the holy God. It can never be paid for. If you could pay for sin, then eventually you'd get out of hell, because someday the debt would be paid. But no, these sins are against an infinite God. They require infinite punishment, so there is no release date from hell. The Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory teaches that venial sins can be purged through suffering. Now, that's a lie. It's a lie that denigrates the holiness of God. It, it discounts the sacrifice of Christ. No one can pay for sin in hell. You are punished for your sins in hell. Well, if hell is eternal punishment, then how could Christ do it? How, how could he pay for sin and satisfy God? And I hope you do know the answer to that. This is the reason that Christ is the God-man. As man, he can literally suffer. And as God, his suffering can be infinite. And I suggest you not try to wrap your head around that. It'll drive you crazy because there's no way that you can fully understand it. Christ is able to satisfy the infinite God because he is God. He can suffer infinitely. Now, on the cross then, the full fury of hell was laid on Christ and he literally paid the price that God demands. Now, if you're taking notes on that, and you write down, he literally paid the price that God's demand, then you need to underline the word literally. He literally did this. He paid the price. This means that the price he paid had a corresponding benefit for those it was paid. He literally paid the price. And his substitution for the sinner was also literal. So everyone for whom Christ died literally receives the benefit of what he died for, what he paid for. And so we say that Christ died for the sins of only those who will be saved. You can't have people in hell who have their sins paid for. Otherwise, the payment and the substitution can't be literal. Now, remember that important point, that, that Christ is the, is the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, before the world was created. There's already this view towards sin that Christ would take care of. He would die for sin. And when, when uh, the world was made... All sins were yet future, weren't they? They were all in the future. God knew what they were. He knew what sins needed to be paid for. He knew which people they needed to be paid for. And so he gave Christ as a substitute, a literal substitute, and a literal payment for the sins of his people. All of that's determined before the foundation of the world. All of God's works are known to him from the beginning. So there's no plan to put more sins on Christ and more payment for sins that avail nothing to the people that commit them. Now, you understand then that the goat offering is a picture of guilt and sin 
transferred, or the guilt and punishment transferred to Christ so that he could bear them on the cross and suffer to the extent that he would pay for them and satisfy God's justice. So the one for whom justice has been satisfied must be set free. He must receive a pardon. He must be declared not guilty because he has no sin that can be charged to him if Christ, in fact, paid for all of his sins. But as you know, others don't believe this. And they see Christ uh, and his sacrifice as a universal atonement. And they will argue that God is not just and loving if he doesn't pay the price for all men and give them a chance to be saved. So they ask the question, what love is this? What love is this that doesn't pay a ransom price for all men equally? In fact, there's a book written with that title, What Love Is This? Written by Dave Hunt, who is now deceased and knows better. But he wrote this, he wrote this book, What Love Is This? In which he questions a, a kind of love where how could it be love if God doesn't die for every person in the world indiscriminately? And I'll tell you right up front, that is a fool's errand theologically. If God has to, has to do that to show his love, then that means that God is obligated to provide salvation for all people indiscriminately. And how can the creator ever be obliged to the creature? That can't happen. Who is it that defines God's love in that system? Well, that would be man who is finite and thinks that he's able to set the parameters for God's love. And so if God steps out of this box that they built for him, they say, well, he can't be a loving God. Now, I'll tell you, whether they admit it, that makes man God. Man has the responsibility of defining the signature attribute of God. In the Word of God, it says that God is love. Now, who has the audacity to define what that love is by asking the question, what love is this, if it doesn't agree with what they say it should be? And then they argue that it's not love when the Scriptures say that God loves his own. And that he gave his life to save his own. Well, I could get kind of worked up about that. And I could go on and on. And we could spend all of our time talking about particular redemption. Which, by the way, folks, answers a lot of questions that make sure that we understand that God is sovereign. And that he should receive glory for our salvation, not man. But some say, well, if you believe that, then you're following a man. That's a man system. Well, yes, indeed, I'll tell you, I am following a man. I'm following the God-man. That man is Christ Jesus who gave his life for his people. That's what the goat offering is about. It pictures guilt and sin, uh, all the punishment transferred for believers onto Jesus Christ where he sets the sinners free so he can be justified with God. Now let me go on. I didn't intend to take us deep into that subject because we got so much to cover. But as it turns out, as we look at this next point, we actually do get a little deeper in. What are the coverings of the tabernacle about? Now, you'll notice that, that if you go back and read the scripture, it talks about how the covering goes all over the tabernacle and encompasses it, it all except that door where, where the priest will go in. All the rest of it's covered up. What does this show us? Well, it shows us a picture of complete satisfaction by Christ, that Christ did all that there is to do. There is nothing left undone. Now this might be foreign to your ears, but your faith in Christ does not add anything to what Christ did. The person who believes in universal atonement does not believe atonement works until it's mixed with the faith of the believer. And quite frankly, in that system, faith becomes the, the, uh, 
Uh, it's faith that stirs the drink. It's faith. The action of man becomes more critical than what the Savior did. Because if the faith of the person is not there, then the entire sacrifice of Christ falls to the ground and it's no good. I should write a book. What sacrifice is that? That's not a kind that God would make. You mean this is what God did? That God gave his son and put him to a, the horrific death of the cross where he suffered hell and, he, and the worth of that sacrifice is dependent upon the decision of a totally depraved man? What sacrifice is that? God can't be God and think like that because that would defy his very nature. Now here is the point. There is nothing left to do because Christ did it all. His sacrifice is complete with or without anything you do. Well, the question that would be asked, then what is the value of faith? Why does God tell us there has to be faith? Well, faith is nothing more than the instrument by which the atonement is realized by the one for whom it was made. Faith does not make the atonement work. The atonement was made, the atonement was settled, and that's the point of Christ being slain from the foundation of the world. This is why the Bible says this is done. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world because he's the one that took care of all of it before we ever entered into wondering what salvation is about. Faith is how you, an elect person of God, realizes that you are considered in the atonement. Faith is the instrument of justification. It's not the cause of justification. Christ is that cause. He's the object of our faith so that your faith does not save you. The object of your faith saves you. And that's what Christ did. Christ is the one who saves. Now, just so we don't misunderstand that everything in salvation was completely finished by Christ, that even the faith that you put in Christ was given by God. Both repentance and faith are gifts of God. Now, anybody who thinks about what I've just said will realize to refute that you've got to get rid of repentance and faith as the gifts of God. I, I heard in and spoke with an independent fundamental Baptist pastor who argued that faith is not a gift of God. Now, he knew that faith as a gift would be fatal to his position, and I give him that much credit for understanding how vital the point is. But then I asked him, do you understand that if you get rid of faith as a gift in Ephesians 2.8, that you also must get rid of repentance? You must also get rid of repentance because that's necessary, and that's also a gift of God. But when I told him that, he was bum-fuzzled because he didn't know that the scriptures actually said faith or, or that repentance is also given or granted by God. That God grants repentance both to Jews and Gentiles. Acts 5.31 Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to what? Give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 11:18. when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. And the word granted there is the same word as given. The Gentiles were given repentance. Now, do you understand this is fatal to the belief that anyone can come to Christ any time that they choose? God must grant repentance. He must give faith. And it's impossible for you to argue that God gives faith to all and gives repentance to all. If he did, there would be universal salvation. And that's what universal atonement does. It must result in universal salvation. Now let me say that, that far back in arguments on these subjects many, many years ago, there were much better theologians than the average Baptist in the pew. 
And they understood the consequences of arguments. And they knew the, the, the scriptures. And maybe you didn't know this, but Baptists in England in the 17th and 18th centuries, the ones that argued for general atonement eventually slid into universalism and became Unitarians. Why? Well, because their arguments logically led them there. They recognize this. They, they knew this, that if they're going to embrace a doctrine that questions God's, uh, Christ's love, God's love, if he doesn't die for all, then that would lead them to their inevitable conclusion, that if they are to hold that position, they couldn't be consistent unless they become universalist. Well, as I said, Baptists in the pew today are not that good at sorting out theological arguments, and so therefore they hold illogical inconsistencies in their doctrine. And if I've said it a hundred times, uh, if, if, if you don't believe the doctrines of grace, the scriptures will throw up brick walls that you can't penetrate. But when people come to the truth, questions are answered. So here's this goat's hair offering thousands of years ago that's woven by the hands of wisdom, uh, women with wisdom, and it's an outstanding revelation of this doctrine. They took this picture of Christ and they put it in their photo album and they said, here is the one who paid for the sins of all who believe. He provides a complete salvation that needs no input from anyone. Now again, the covering stretched over the entire structure. It covered up the boards and the bars right down to the silver of redemption. And this picture says, here is Christ. He did it all. There's nothing left for you to do. Salvation is all of the Lord. Now again, the only opening is what? The door. We've not talked about the door. We've talked about the gate of the fence. And you can imagine that the door of the tabernacle represents mostly the same things as that gate of the fence. So here is the tabernacle covered and closed. There's one opening that accesses it all. And I don't even think I need to touch that truth with you tonight because you already understand where that's going. So we are accepted by God because Christ made complete satisfaction to the justice of God. God would never come in and inhabit the tabernacle until sin is ceremonially satisfied and judicially taken out of the way. So we have right standing with God only because our transgressions are covered under Christ's blood. Well, let me conclude with this last thought. Our sins were placed on Christ, but we haven't yet much considered what God did to his own son to accomplish this. What did he do? God dealt with Jesus as the criminal of the universe. This is the way that God treated his son. Now, can you imagine that? The holy, righteous son of God had the filth of all of our sins transferred to him. God can't touch sin. He can't look on sin. And when Christ became sin, God shut out the lights of the universe and then he unmercifully turned his back on his son as he suffered for us. Now, perish the thought that God did this to his son and that awful sacrifice is made effective by what man does. And I'll tell you a thousand times no, because that would sure make us ask the question, what love is this? That God would do that to his own son and then, and then have it all become effectual based upon what man does. That is not the sacrifice of Christ. He died as an effectual sacrifice to guarantee that all for whom that sacrifice is made will find favor with God. Now, why, why would any man say, you know, I'm saved 
because I had the good sense to believe. That is a monstrous assertion. R.C. Sproul wrote a book entitled, Everybody is a Theologian. And his, his title is a play on words, meaning that no matter who you are, where you are, you have some idea about God. You have a theology. Even an atheist has a theology. Everybody is theological. The sad part of that is that not very many people are good theologians because they have very poor understanding of God. So very few have good sense at all. Nobody's ever saved by good sense. So I'm trying to tell you tonight, if you want to understand, or you do understand the types and figures of the tabernacle, here you see Christ displayed in all the doctrines that are represented in the gospel. We have this photo album, we have this picture book of these, these marvelous doctrines of Christ. And when you learn it, you will be a good theologian. I promise you, you'll be a good theologian when you learn these things. So may, may God help us to see Christ and only Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time spent in your word tonight. And these are truly, truly marvelous pictures of Jesus Christ that are found in the tabernacle. Lord, we thank you that our sins were placed on Christ. And that the covering for our sins is not dependent on anything we do. Not even our faith commends us to you because that faith is given by you. Repentance and faith are your gifts and you bring us. You, you have sovereign control over every part of our salvation. And Lord, we know that's where it must remain. If it's any place else, we will never be saved. You must do it all for us. We thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for what we learn. Theological principles, seeing these doctrines revealed in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.